Welcome to Fort William Baptist Church Audio Sermons. We're so glad you could join with us today. This fall, we have begun a new sermon series called Soteriology. During this series, we will aim to unpack how our God applies salvation to sinful men and women. We are returning to the great doctrines of a sustained and refreshed Christ Church since the days of the Apostles. With the great works of God before us, effectual calling, regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification, our hearts will be stirred up to hunger more of the work of God. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Brothers and sisters, we're continuing in our series, and this morning our sermon is going to be from John chapter 3. So take your Bibles and turn there. So in this series, we're studying salvation. That's what soteriology means. And we have this little phrase we've been using, a three-word sentence, God saves sinners. So last week, we looked at effectual calling, and we learned that God saves sinners by calling sinners to himself. And this week, we're going to look at the doctrine of regeneration, and we're going to learn that God saves sinners by making the spiritually dead alive. And so our sermon text this morning is John chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. So let's listen to God's word together. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. So we're studying the doctrine of regeneration this morning, and I want to start with a story to prime the pump, to to get us thinking in the right direction about this. So we're going to look at a certain period of history, and we can start like this. It all started, and when it started, there were sparks, and the sparks were here and there. There were were signs of of life. Certain men and and certain women were, were beginning to worship God zealously. These people began to seek the face of God earnestly. Every opportunity to make use of the means of grace, they, they seized upon it. 
And for good reason, these people called these, these sparks here and there awakenings. But the reality is this, they were just sparks. So during the 1720s and the 1730s, these instances of awakening, they were, they were spotty, they were regional, they were sporadic. But between the years of 1737 and 1740, these sparks would turn into a blazing fire so much so that historians now look back on those years and call them the Great Awakening. And so what happened is that these sparks turned into a great fire and these flames engulfed both sides of the English-speaking Atlantic so both in England and in the colonies, men and women were caught up in this, this great work of God. Thousands of people were now seeking the face of the Lord. This was such a unique time in history. So such was the interest in the things of God that, that church services had to go outside because people couldn't fit inside. And many services had to be done, many a day and throughout the week. And so we ask, well, what in the world caused these sparks to turn into a raging fire? There's these sparks here and there, awakenings, but all of a sudden there's this, this great interest in the Lord. What happened? Certainly many reasons can be given and many have been explored. Some have pointed to politics, some have pointed to psychology, others to technology, trying to explain the phenomenon of the, the great awakening. But I want to bypass all of those answers and I want to take you to an unexpected place. I want to take you to a dorm room at Oxford University. So the year is 1735, just two years before the, this, great, this great fire breaks out from these sparks. So at Oxford University, in a dorm room, 1735, there's this young man, he's 21 years old, and he's, he's lying sick in bed. And his sickness was extreme, so extreme that many of his friends thought he was gonna, he was gonna die. But we have to understand something about this man's sickness. This sickness was self-imposed. He was sick because he had made himself sick. For about a year, this man had been depriving himself. And so he started with food. So first he gave up fruits and desserts and treats. And then he gave up all food except tea and some bread. But that didn't prove to be enough. And then he deprived himself of warmth and heat. He would go out early in the morning. He would prostrate himself on the ground in the cold mornings. And at one point, his hand turned black from, from frostbite. Then he deprived himself of friends. He'd shut himself up in private, literally spending hours just pouring over his New Testament, crying and praying. And so all of this pain on the outside, we see that the fasting the seclusion was a sign of what was going on inside of this man. His soul was in, in tatters. He had, he had heard something about Christianity that he had never heard before, something that just shook him to the core. He heard that Christianity was a matter of, of union between the soul and God, that Christianity was a matter of Christ formed within the man. And perhaps it's best just to let this 21-year-old speak for himself. He says in one of his journals, God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I learned that a man may go to church, he may say his prayers, he may receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. Oh, how did my heart rise and shudder like a poor man that is afraid to look into his accounting books, lest he find himself bankrupt. What's going on here? This man was torn up by discontinuity, 
So he knew the truth on one hand. He knew that Christianity was a, a union of the soul with God, that a man must be born again or be damned, that a man must experience God for himself. And then on the other hand, he looked inside of his own soul. He looked at his accounting books. And he found that he was bankrupt. He had no God. He had no union. He had no real and true experience. And so what did he do? Well, he strove with all of his might to find this union with God. He used every single measure he could lay hold of so that he might gain this experience with God. Nothing was out of bounds. Nothing was too extreme for him because he desired to get God for himself. And so after a year of this, there he lay on his bed. His body was worn out, no longer able to carry out this extreme regimen. He was incapable of striving anymore. None of the works that he had performed, he was fasting, he was praying for long hours, he was weeping and reading and, and keeping himself from people. None of these things brought any satisfaction to his soul. And what's so interesting is at this point when he's laid up on his bed that God in his wisdom decided to intervene for this man. Notice the logic of this, how God works. When all of his strength was exhausted, when all of his striving had to cease because he could do it no more, when all of his works were shown to be unprofitable, God came and God transformed this man. And so he speaks of his experience while he's laid up. He says this, God was pleased to remove my heavy load to enable me to lay hold of his dear son by a living faith. And by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal me even to the day of everlasting redemption. Oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory was my soul filled. When the weight of sin went off in an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God and a full assurance of faith broke in on my unhappy soul. See what happened? This man was so unhappy. Something happened. And his soul was made happy. Joy broke in. What happened? God did for this man what this man could have never have done for himself. He was dead in his sin, far from God, and nothing he did brought him close to God. All of his works, they only made him miserable. But here, but here, the greatest miracle happened. God caused this man to be born again to a living hope. But that isn't the end of the story. Perhaps some of you have heard of this man before. His name's George Whitfield. Perhaps the greatest evangelist since the Apostle Paul. And just two years after this conversion, he's converted in 1735, 1737, the Lord props up this young man and he begins preaching out in the fields. And people start gathering. And we ask, well, what is he preaching about? Well, he starts preaching about the doctrine of the new birth. And what he began to do was press upon the masses, one and all, a radical supernaturalism that was forgotten and neglected. He preached, a man must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, the sparks turn into great flames. So I start this story with George Whitfield for two reasons. First, Though our stories are radically different than Whitfield's, I've never met anybody like him. We do have something in common with him. And what we have in common is this. We have Christ Jesus only for this reason, because God caused us to be born again. 
And Whitfield, in dramatic fashion, illustrates this for us. It was only when he was laid up and exhausted by all of his striving did then God choose to make him alive. So we learn something here. Our life in Christ is due to a supernatural work of God that we had nothing to do with. That's what we learn in George Whitfield's life and what we're going to learn in John chapter 3 this morning. Second, we learn this. If the church is to have any strength or power in this day, it must know and not only know but proclaim a message saturated with supernaturalism. The church is the strongest when the church points away from human striving what humans can do and points to God and what God does. The church is at its best when it points away from men and their abilities and to the almighty God. So that's what we learn from Whitfield's story. So what can we say about this doctrine? Well, when we look into the scriptures, this doctrine comes to us with many names. Sometimes it's called regeneration. I've already called it that this morning. So Paul uses this phrase in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And at other times, it's described with the language of birth. So if you read John, this biblical author, he describes Christians as what? As a people born of God. In some cases, this doctrine is described as a work of creation. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul is describing what happens to people when they come to, to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way. And when he wants to describe this experience, what does he do? He reaches back to Genesis chapter 1 and he borrows language from the creation account to describe salvation. And so he says this, For the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And in the same letter, Paul says what? If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Not to be forgotten, this doctrine is described sometimes as a, as a resurrection event. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 tells us this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive, alive together with Christ. So the, the scriptures use many different names for this doctrine we're studying. Regeneration, born of God, new creation, resurrection. But the same reality is being described. So here's a definition. Regeneration is the act of God when he both purifies us from the corruption of sin and renovates our nature into the image of Christ through the spirit of Christ. So regeneration is the act of God. This is something that God does and God alone. And in this act, he, he purifies us from corruption. Sin corrupts us and he purifies that corruption and he renovates our nature into the image of Jesus. And he does this all through what? Through the spirit of Jesus. And so we can just relate this to our, our theme. So our theme is what? Soteriology means God saves sinners. So we can just modify that sentence. God saves sinners by making the spiritually dead alive. God saves sinners by making the spiritually dead alive. So we don't have time to explore all that the scriptures say about regeneration. And so we're going to focus in on one particular passage this morning, John chapter 3, and learn from Jesus himself what this doctrine means for us and how it works. So in John chapter 3, we get this unique opportunity to eavesdrop on a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. 
So Nicodemus is not an ordinary man. He was a man of power and a man of learning. He was a leader of God's people, and he was also a teacher of God's people. And in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and there's this secret meeting that takes place at night, and Nicodemus wants to inquire more closely about Jesus and what Jesus has been doing and saying. And so as we eavesdrop on this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, we're going to ask four questions And these four questions should make clear the doctrine of regeneration to us. So question number one, we're going to ask, what is regeneration necessary for? What is regeneration necessary for? Second, why is regeneration necessary? Why do we need it? Third, what is regeneration? And fourth, how do I get regenerated? So let's dive into John chapter 3. First question, what is regeneration necessary for? So we have to say this about Jesus. He was the most interesting conversation partner. There's just something about him. He was always able to penetrate into the depths of a human with insight. No matter the situation, no matter the question, he was never thrown off track. He was never confused. He was never babbled. Each and every conversation that we have of Jesus recorded for us in scripture. Jesus just cuts right to the heart. And this is what happens with Nicodemus. So Nicodemus, as we learn in verses one through two, he comes to Jesus at night and he he comes to Jesus because he wants to inquire of Jesus. Jesus has done some notable things already in the gospel of John. We could say that Jesus' name has been in the news. And so Nicodemus is a leader and teacher of God's people. And so he's interested in Jesus. He's coming to inspect him. And so this makes logical sense to us. Here's Nicodemus. He's coming to inspect Jesus. And so Nicodemus shows up and starts inspecting. And right away, Jesus responds to Nicodemus in verse 3. And he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but that seems like a real head scratcher to me. Nicodemus wants to talk about Jesus and what Jesus has been doing and what Jesus plans to do. But Jesus just seems to change the conversation. He wants to talk about this this second birth, born again. So he asks, well, what is going on here? Here's Nicodemus. He's wanting to talk about Jesus, and Jesus wants to talk about this, this second birth. It seems like Jesus is being shifty and evasive. He's avoiding the topic of his sonship of God and of his plan and, and, and plan to save man from his sins. But is Jesus being evasive? Is he being shifty? Well, we should know better than that. We know something about Jesus. He always cuts to the heart. And what Jesus does here in verse 3 makes good sense if you think about it. I think Jesus is saying something like this. Nicodemus, you have come here today to inspect me. You have come here today trying to assess my credentials and my works. But get this, you cannot learn me. You cannot grasp me. You cannot fathom my mission or my message. You cannot grasp hold of my salvation. You cannot see my glory as a savior unless unless this happens to you first, unless you are born again. What Jesus says makes good sense. Nicodemus is trying to inspect Jesus, and Jesus says, you can't inspect me. You can't understand me unless you are born again. So we ask, well, what is regeneration necessary for? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is clearly answering our question. 
The new birth is a necessary prerequisite for all things salvation. We need to lean into Jesus' words because they're so powerful and we cannot miss the force of them. What is Jesus saying to us this morning? Well, he's saying this to each and every one of us. You cannot place your faith in me unless you are born again. You cannot know the forgiveness of sins unless you are born again. You cannot know God as Father unless you are born again. You cannot taste and see my glory. You cannot know me truly unless you are born again. Jesus says everything in salvation hinges upon this one doctrine. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what is regeneration necessary for? It's necessary for all things salvation. Question number two. We want to dive in deeper. Why is regeneration necessary? So Jesus' words are startling. He tells us that we need something done to us before we can see, before we can enter, before we can have and share in the kingdom of God. And why is this necessary? And Jesus, as we look at John chapter 3, gives us three reasons why it's so. So first of all, Regeneration is necessary because humans cannot produce spiritual life for themselves. Jesus says this in verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The truth is put even more plainly at the beginning of the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. John is introducing us to Jesus, and he says this, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now listen to this language. John says, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We we are not capable in of of ourselves to give birth to spiritual life so that we might enter into the kingdom of God. It's not in us. Second, Regeneration is necessary because humans cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is building on a doctrine of sin. Due to sin, we have become blind. And that doesn't mean that our eyes have stopped working. I can still see you. But what it does mean is there's this moral blindness that has taken place. Because of sin, we really can't see what is really true and really beautiful and really good. We've become blind to it. And sadly, this is illustrated for us right in our text, in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Think about this. Nicodemus is in the presence of the Lord Jesus. His eyes can see Jesus and make out his figure. Nicodemus knew what Jesus exactly looked like. His ears could hear Jesus' voice. His nose could have smelt Jesus. Nicodemus could have reached out in that conversation and, and grabbed Jesus with his hands amazing before Nicodemus stood the incarnate son of God in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us before Nicodemus stood the great savior the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world but what happens here Nicodemus doesn't worship Jesus he doesn't prostrate himself he doesn't lay down on his face before Jesus because Jesus is just so great and glorious. He doesn't cling to Jesus for salvation, saying, Jesus, I need your salvation right here, right now. I know you can save. Pour out your grace on me. Why doesn't he do that? Nicodemus is blind. 
that's blind. He can't see the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is right in front of him in the person of the son of God. Third, regeneration is necessary because humans due to sin are weak and powerless. Jesus puts it like this in verse five, unless one is born of the water, of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He cannot. It's not a possibility. So we need to do something. We need to look at chapter three and we need to pile up all of Jesus' words. What does Jesus say to us? Cannot see, cannot enter. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And when we pile up all of Jesus' words, we're led to this inescapable conclusion. There is simply no way for the sinner to get himself or herself into the kingdom of God. The thing that is absolutely necessary for salvation, the thing that you desperately need You can't do for yourself. You can't do for yourself. We have to remember this. Jesus' salvation is a humble salvation. And Jesus humbles every single person who comes to him. In Jesus' salvation, there is no room for self-sufficiency. There is no room for pride. There is no room for your innate ability. We are utterly dependent upon the work of God Jesus teaches us due to our sin. Why regeneration? Because we are radically sinful. Question number three. What is regeneration? So Nicodemus is confused. He is so confused in this conversation. What Jesus is saying to him doesn't make sense. He has come to Jesus and he's He's trying to sort out these words. And so he says to Jesus in verse four, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so Jesus responds to Nicodemus. Look at verse five. And verse five is so important. Perhaps the most important verse in this whole passage because Jesus gives us his definition of regeneration or new birth. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's Jesus' definition. And on the first reading, this doesn't seem to help us or Nicodemus. So in verse 3, Jesus asserts to Nicodemus, he must be born again to understand him. In verse 4, Nicodemus replies to Jesus in confusion, well, I'm a grown man. How can I enter into my mother's womb again? This doesn't make sense to me. Then Jesus, to clear all of this up, sharpens his statement and says this, you must be born of the water and the spirit. And so water and the spirit, according to Jesus, is the essence of the new birth. So what does that mean? How can we figure out what Jesus means? He doesn't give us any clues, does he, of what water and spirit means? They seem random to us. Well, we have to know this. Jesus was steeped in the Old Testament. So if we want to find an answer, we've got to turn to the Old Testament. And when we turn to the Old Testament and read a prophecy from Ezekiel, we learn what Jesus is talking about. So Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 27. Ezekiel is prophesying about a day when God will come and rescue his people. And I just want you to listen to these words and listen for two words in them. Listen for the word water and listen for the word spirit. So Ezekiel prophesies, he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and I will bring you into your own land and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness 
And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you hear those words? We heard water and we heard spirit. And all of a sudden what Jesus says makes sense. Jesus tells us regeneration is a matter of water and spirit. It's water. What does that mean? It means in this great act, God purifies us. So sin pollutes us. It pollutes every aspect of our our humanity, our minds, our wills, our hearts. But in regeneration, God does this great work. He draws near to the sinner and he cleanses the sinner from all pollution. Listen to Ezekiel explain what Jesus is talking about. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. Not just from some of your uncleanness, but from all your uncleanness. Regeneration is this radical act of God where he comes and he cleans up the polluted sinner. Jesus also says something else. Regeneration is not only water, it's also spirit. So God cleans us up, but that's not all that he does. He just doesn't give us a a fresh start. We're just clean, but he actually moves us forward. He does a new and positive work. He starts building up in our hearts something. And what does he do? Well, we've got these old hearts that just don't work. They're stones. He's going to remove that and give us a heart of flesh. And on top of that, he's going to put within us his very spirit. And what's the result of this great work of God? Something glorious. Because God does as we begin to love God and his word and his ways. We never loved God before. We never saw him as beautiful and good. We never saw his ways as delightful. But because of this work of the spirit changing our hearts, all of a sudden it's our greatest delight to walk in the way of the Lord. So what is this regeneration all about? It's about water. God cleans up our pollution It's about spirit. God gives us new hearts so that we might run after him. So question number four. How do I get regenerated? How do I get regenerated? And this should create a deep hunger in us. We we need regeneration. We cannot get into the kingdom of God without it. We can't see Jesus' glory and goodness without it. We need it because we're sinners. We need this cleansing. We need this new heart. How can we get it? And so we ask, well, what do I need to say? What do I need to do? Where do I need to go? Who do I need to speak to? What strings do I need to to pull on? What works do I need to perform so that I might have this for myself? Because I need it so bad. Well, listen to Jesus. Verse eight. He says this, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How do we get this precious gift of life? Jesus is clear. We don't do anything. In fact, we can't do anything to get it. Regeneration has nothing to do with us. It doesn't have anything to do with our our decisions, our choices, our desires, our deeds, our performance, our abilities, our talents. Nothing to do with us. Everything to do with God. So how do we get it? Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes meaning the Spirit gives life when he wishes and to whom he wishes. Regeneration comes not by the will or the power of man, but only by the will and the power of the holy and sovereign God. And this is so precious, isn't it? In our sin, we would have never 
run after God, but God has done something we could have never have done for ourselves. He's changed us. And so like last week, we find ourselves staring directly at God. When we studied effectual calling, we look to God because he's the God who calls us out of our sin to himself. And here in the doctrine of regeneration, we find ourselves staring directly at God again. We ask, why am I a Christian today? And we say, because God caused me to be born again. We point our finger directly to God and nowhere else. So regeneration is a glorious doctrine. It's glorious. And Jesus unpacks the glory of this doctrine for us in John chapter 3. It's this gracious work of God, God doing for us what we could have never done for ourselves so that we might seek him and know him and love him. He takes dead sinners and makes them alive. So as we wrap up this morning, as we conclude, I want to ask a simple question. Well, what are we supposed to do in light of this doctrine? What application is there for us? I want to give you two applications, just two really simple commands. First command, believe the gospel today. Second command, go and proclaim the gospel today. Believe the gospel today, go and proclaim the gospel today. And if you've been listening, you might scratch your head and say, well, how can this be an application? We see it in Jesus' words. Salvation lies in the hands of God, in the hands of God alone. And these applications seem to contradict what we've just been learning. What business do we have believing in God if God is both the author and the worker of spiritual birth? Shouldn't we just wait to see if the Spirit's going to do something in our hearts? Shouldn't we just wait looking inside of us for some new principle of life before we do anything else? And what business do we have to go about proclaiming the gospel of God? Shouldn't we just wait to see if the Spirit does something first? And then when the Spirit does something, we'll go and follow up and talk about Jesus with them? Well, we have to understand this. The commands of the gospel, to believe the gospel, to go proclaim the gospel, are not at all in tension with God's sovereignty. How can I say this? Well, just look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. There is no tension in the soul and mind of Jesus. Jesus is the greatest preacher of God's sovereignty and salvation. He says in John chapter 3 this, the wind blows where it wishes. That's the greatest statement on sovereignty, I think, in the scriptures. The wind blows where it wishes. Then what happens three chapters later? Well, Jesus stands up in front of the crowds and he begins to preach. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus believes in the sovereignty of God and then he goes out and does what? He commands sinners to come to him and feast on him. And this happens all the time. John 3, Jesus speaks of the necessity of the new birth. It doesn't get any clearer than this. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But then we read our call to worship this morning. The festival is coming to an end and the crowd is all around him and then Jesus stands up and he just yells. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There is no tension with Jesus. He preaches the sovereignty of God and then what does he do? He calls sinners to come and to come now. So how does this work? Well, God's sovereignty and salvation is our only hope. In fact, it is a doctrine that should fill us with hope. Sovereignty, the sovereignty of God in salvation doesn't defeat or destroy ministry. No, rather the sovereignty of God establishes ministry for us. 
So I could just speak personally about myself. I wouldn't stand here and I wouldn't preach to you unless I believed that God was completely and totally sovereign in salvation. Because if he wasn't, this whole exercise would be pointless because you're sinners. I'm a sinner. Nothing I can do, nothing I can say will persuade you. I'm just a man. But I know this, that as I preach the gospel, God may be pleased to use that gospel word and to take it and to push it into your heart and to change your heart, to transform you. And that gives strength. That gives confidence. You can stand and preach because you know that God uses this word and he has done it before and he has promised to be there when you're preaching and teaching it. So that gives strength, and that's something we should consider for all of our lives. If you're a mom and dad, you're with your children, and you're teaching them the word, you should remember that God uses means. And in fact, that day, he might use your words to change your children forever. Or when you're at work, or you're just having a casual conversation, you need to remember, God may use my gospel word today. He may take it into their heart and change them forever. The sovereignty of God does not defeat ministry, rather it establishes ministry. We can minister with confidence and boldness knowing that God delights in using our words to change sinners. And if you are here this morning and you've just heard the word of the gospel and you don't know your share in it, come to Christ today. Come to Christ today. Don't wait. Come to Christ Christ bids you this morning. He says, I am the bread of life. And he says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's the offer of the gospel today. And that's what the preacher of God's sovereignty says to you. Come, eat, live, be satisfied. Fill yourself up on me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we glory in Jesus We glory in his words. They're good. They're the best. Would you change our hearts and our minds? We are dependent upon your work. Holy Spirit, come. Change us. We pray this in Jesus' good and great name. Amen.